Hey, welcome to our online experience. And uh, my name's Dan. I'm one of the pastors here at the Norton campus. If I've never met you, hopefully I'll get to do that soon, right? Uh, we're in kind of interesting times. And so we're just trying to keep you guys up to date as to what's going on. And so we're going to keep delivering this online experience. We're meeting on Sunday mornings. Uh, we have 8 o'clock, uh, 9.30, 11 o'clock, and 5.30. Uh, we also made the decision to continue through the month of August with our family experience on Wednesday nights at 6 o'clock. So we're going to do that throughout uh, the month of August. We are going to begin our 56 programming the first Sunday in August, and that will happen during our 11 o'clock service. And so if you have a kiddo in the 5th and 6th grade, during 11 o'clock Sunday mornings, we're going to have a gathering for them. And then our 7th through 12th graders are meeting Thursday nights at 6.30, and they're having a blast together. So just want to let you know these things as we kind of navigate these interesting waters that we're in. Uh, we want you to keep checking our website, download our app. If you're not getting emails, let us know that. We're just going to do our best to communicate with you. Go to Luke 10 in your Bible this morning, though, uh, because or today, tonight, whenever you're watching this, right? Uh, and uh, we're going to look at a parable or a little story that Jesus told as you're kind of getting set up there and getting a little note page or something to take some notes with. Last week, uh, so glad Pastor Jonathan kind of shared with us and uh, man, it was great to hear from him. I had the opportunity to be at Barberton and so it was a real privilege to be over there and to hang out with those folks. Uh, I was there because uh, uh, we were able to welcome into the world our second grandchild, uh, uh, little Ava Joy came into the world, six pounds, 10 ounces. So we're really, really excited about that. And uh, so as Joel was taking care of things there, I was over at Barberton, had a great time doing that. But we are in this conversation called Little Stories, Big Ideas, simply looking at some little stories Jesus told called parables that have big ideas. Here's what I want to say right out of the, the gate. Okay, right out of the gate. Today I want to look at one of the most familiar, one of the most quoted, one, probably one of the most one of the favorite stories Jesus told. And yet I want to tell you this, I think it's one of the most misunderstood, misinterpreted, and misapplied. So here's what I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you to watch to the end. Because I think this story, everybody knows. And few people get their arms around. So I was thinking about this little story Jesus told. It made me think of there comes a time in every little boy's life when he wants to prove himself, right? He wants to justify himself, right? Uh, I can remember that as a boy. And you particularly want to do that with your father, right? You kind of want to prove yourself that you're worthy, that you're worthy to be called a man. And you kind of prove yourself by testing your pops, right? By testing your dad, right? You test him physically. So you wrestle him till you get to the point where you're like, now I can beat you, right? I'm stronger than you. Or you test him intellectually. You try to stump him, right? You try to come up with some random facts that maybe he doesn't know. It's like, well, there you go, right? Now I finally am as smart as you or maybe smarter than you or whatever it might be. Or maybe it's your accomplishments, right? And, and you want to prove yourself. You want to justify yourself. It kind of is something that wafts into all of our relationships, right? You want to prove yourself. You want to prove you're worthwhile to be that girl's boyfriend. Eventually, you want to prove that you're worthwhile and you want to prove yourself to her dad so that he might look at you and say, you are worthy to be my son-in-law, right? I mean, all kinds of relationships and life is about justifying yourself. It's about proving yourself. What's interesting is this. What's interesting is when that wafts into our relationship with God. 
Because what can happen is many of us can have the very same idea and thought about God. And we want to justify ourselves to God. We want to prove ourselves worthy to God. And that's why this little story is really interesting to me that I want to look at today. Because this little story is about somebody, it's about a fella who wanted to justify himself. So what he decided to do was he decided to test Jesus, the very son of God. It's found in Luke 10. You have your Bibles open there. Here's what it says. For a lot of you, this might be familiar, but it says on one occasion, an expert in the law, let's stop for a minute, don't think law and order, think you want this guy on your Bible trivia team. That's what you got to think, right? He's an expert in the law. That means he knew the Old Testament inside and out. He knew it better than you and I put together, right? Like he knew it. He had memorized big parts of it. On one occasion, expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Jesus was constantly being tested. He said, teacher, what must I we're going to come back to this. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's like, what do I got to do to make sure that I'm worthy for eternal life? I love the fact Jesus constantly does this, right? He answers questions with questions. He looks at the guy who's an expert in the Old Testament law and says, what's written in the law? How do you read it? The guy answers, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your strength, with all of your mind. Then he says, love your neighbor as yourself. He sums up the Ten Commandments. That's, he's summing up the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are about loving God, loving others. Jesus answers him, you have answered correctly. And then he kind of looks at the guy and he says this, do this, do that, and you'll live. Well, that creates a question because this guy came to Jesus and he wants to prove himself. He wants to justify himself. He wants to know that he's okay. So look at what happens next. Literally says, but he, that's the expert in the law, wanted to justify himself. So what did he do? So he asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? Get what's going on here. Guy wants to justify himself. He wants to make sure he's doing the right things to the right people. So he has a question because he's kind of looking for a loophole. He wants to make sure I've got all my T's crossed, I's dotted, right? He says, exactly who is my neighbor? Now, <clears throat> just think about that. That's a great question. Because if I got to love my neighbor, I want to know exactly who is that? Because I don't know about you, but I've, I've had some interesting neighbors, right? And I've been kind of like, well, who does that include? <laughs> like, who are we talking about? I mean, I've had some crazy circumstances when it comes to neighbors, right? Had a neighbor, I was out in his backyard looking for his boa constrictor. Had a neighbor, on one occasion, they intentionally tried to flood my basement. I asked him why, for no particular reason, right? Just wanted to flood my basement, right? Had another neighbor and their children led a demonic parade down our street, right? I had some crazy wild circumstances when it comes to neighbor. This guy was saying, exactly who's my neighbor? I want to know, if i got to love my neighbor, then who is my neighbor? Jesus says, i got a little story for you. And it's got a really big idea, but it might not be what you think. And I would say to you today, if you're watching this, it might not be what you think. Jesus says a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And there was a road, by the way. It was windy and steep, about 17, 18 miles long. It was known to be dangerous, and this guy was attacked. By robbers. In that day, they did 
exactly what you would have thought. They stripped him of what was valuable, his clothes. He didn't have credit cards, but they took his clothes. <laughs> they beat him. They went away, leaving him half dead. I mean, this road, they, they, people listening to this story would have a picture of this. Like, oh yeah, that's dangerous. Oh yeah, that happens all the time. And literally, we have a desperate situation. And Jesus said, this guy's left half dead. But then the plot thickens. Look at what happens next. Jesus says the guy literally is half dead. And along the road comes a priest. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, so he's going down the same road. Let's just think about this. A priest would have been somebody higher socioeconomically, it had been somebody who in their culture would be like, there's a guy who is righteous, right? There is a guy who's prominent. There's a guy who is justified. I mean, he is doing justifiable things. That guy happened to be going down the same road. Maybe he's coming from two weeks duty in the temple. He sees the man. And then he does what you don't think. He, in the Greek, it's very, the emphasis is there. He passes on the other side. Sees the guy, half dead, in the ditch, passes on the other side. Don't worry, because not far behind this guy is his apprentice, his intern. So to a Levite, works in the temple, very closely connected with the priest. When he came to the place, he saw him in the ditch. He passed by on the other side. You read this and you're like, wow, these two guys that very, very highly regarded in our culture. Jesus is telling this story and he uses them on purpose as an example. And they see the guy and they do the opposite of what you would have thought. And before you get too critical of them, you got to think, well, I don't know what was going through their brain. Maybe they were busy. They're very important people. Maybe they thought, man, that's kind of risky. Risky place on the road, right? There could be a whole bunch of reasons that they passed by on the other side. But then Jesus takes the story and just goes like this. He says, verse 33, but a Samaritan. And literally everybody listening, every Jew listening to this story had been like fingernails on a chalkboard. Because there was a toxic feeling about Samaritans. They would have seen them as a mixed race, half-breeds. They would have seen them as toxic. They would have seen them as someone to be avoided. In fact, just one chapter earlier, in chapter 9, Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm getting ready to go and we're going to be crucified. Here's what it says. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus set out for Jerusalem. That's going to be important. He sent messengers ahead who went into a, there's our word, Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there didn't welcome him. Right? So it was both ways. Because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? One chapter earlier, his own disciples were saying, I don't know, Lord, you want us to like call down fire on these Samaritan people? Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. Interesting, right? So when you get to verse 33 of chapter 10, it says, but a Samaritan. And then look at what happens. As he traveled, he came where the man was, man in the ditch. 
He saw him, took pity on him, went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey. Think about that. Now this dude's walking because the guy in the ditch is on his donkey. Brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper. He says, look after him. And when I return, I'll come back. I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. That's important. Wouldn't have bankruptcy laws. So if this guy would have incurred more expense, he would have become the innkeeper's slave. This Samaritan saying, I want to make sure that doesn't happen. And we'll come back. This is all interesting, right? Jesus literally uses the hated man, the Samaritan, to be the hero of the story. And what Jesus does is he illustrates what it actually means to love your neighbor. What's going on here? You ought to write this down somewhere. Jesus just simply wants us to know that loving my neighbor is, is mercy in motion. It's mercy in motion. Because he eventually asked the expert in the law, which of these guys do you think neighbored? And the guy says, the one who had mercy. And that's all he's demonstrating here. He's saying, if you want to know what it means to love your neighbor, loving your neighbor is mercy in motion. And the lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus said, I'll tell you what it means to love your neighbor. What's it mean? What's it look like? Well, there's several things that pop out. First is this. Love begins with selfless awareness. The guy saw the man. If you want to know what mercy in motion looks like, it begins with seeing other people. Can we be honest? And maybe you're watching this by yourself, so you can you can really be honest, right? Raise your hand. That's a hard place to start. You know why? Because we naturally think a lot about us. Just be honest. I think a lot about me. I think about me all the time. Don't judge me. You do too. Like we're pre-wired to do that. It's like natural for us to think about me. And what happens is we can be so much thinking about us that we miss others. Like when I look at mercy in motion, it's this selfless awareness. He saw the guy. But it didn't stop there. It ignited in him a sympathetic compassion. I, I shared this a couple of weeks ago with you. It's like one of my favorite words in the Greek language, right? right? It's like, you like spit everywhere when you say it. But it's this gut-wrenching compassion. The guy took pity on him. That's interesting to me. The Samaritan guy didn't look at him with some sort of social prejudice. He could have. If that guy in the ditch is a Jew and I'm a Samaritan, like, why would I have anything to do with you? Or he could have looked at him with some sort of criticism. Ah, what did you do to deserve that? But instead, he looked at him with spalakna, with this gut-wrenching compassion. What does that mean? That he was able to empathize and identify. Life looks different when you get in somebody else's skin for a minute, doesn't it? Isn't it true? Like when you allow yourself to selflessly be aware of someone else, life looks different. You know, I remember my, my wife was, we were raising our kids. She stayed at home with them. And I would go to work all day and I'd be so tired and she would be tired when I would come home. And I would be like, why are you so tired? You're at home all day. <laughs> Young and dumb, right? Until one weekend, she's like, gonna go away. And I said, I got it. And I'm home all day with all three. 
she came back and I thought to myself, man, oh man, I do not pay you enough, right? Like, you're working harder than I ever thought of working, right? Like, life looks different. I shared with you a couple weeks ago that I began a, a, a friendship, and I have it so, totally enjoyed it, with a black pastor in Akron. His name's Samuel. He and I are enjoying conversation together. It's been so fascinating for me to hear his story, to hear what life was like growing up for him in Norton. You know what that allows for me to do? It allows for me to maybe see life from a different perspective and to be able to spalakna, to be able to identify and have some empathy. It doesn't stop there. It says he went to him. What's the point? Love's willing to make the first move. Love is willing to walk into the awkward. Love's willing to show up, take a risk. Love seeks to understand. Love, listen, love doesn't just seek to be the first to post a comment on Facebook so it can make a point. But love seeks to show up so it can make a difference. He goes on to say that he bandaged the guy's wounds. He poured oil and wine. He put him on his own donkey, brought him in. What's he saying? He says love really helps. Like He didn't lecture the guy. He didn't ask him if he did something to invite this attack. He helped him. The guy needed out of the ditch. Got him out of the ditch. The guy had wounds. He bandaged him. Probably tore his own clothes and put bandages. Put him on his own donkey. Walked the rest of the way to the inn. Love really helps. Then I think what's interesting is the next day it says he took out two denarii. By the way, that's two days' pay. Gave him to the innkeeper, says, look after him. I think it's simply this. Love is kindness that costs. It has a cost. Two denarii, two days' pay. In fact, there was some literature written not long after Jesus would have told this story that says that quite possibly this guy paid for two months' stay at that inn. That's significant. Pretty lavish. But then it says, the guy says, when I return, I will reimburse you. I'll reimburse you any expense you may have. What's he saying? Well, love just keeps showing up. Love keeps showing up, right? He wanted to make sure this guy didn't somehow go into debt. Jesus tells a story, and he simply is saying to the guy who asked, who is my neighbor? He says, well, here's what it looks like to love your neighbor. It's mercy in motion. And then Jesus looks at the guy And he has a question, and here's his question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law said, he couldn't even say the Samaritan. Do you see that? He can't even choke it out. Uh, The one who had mercy on him? I guess it was the, the one who had mercy. And Jesus simply looks at the guy and he says, you're right, go do likewise. You're exactly right, go and do likewise. The guy asked Jesus a question. Do you see what Jesus did? The guy said, who's my neighbor? Why did the guy ask that question? He wanted to justify himself, prove himself. Jesus didn't answer that question, did he? Do you see what Jesus did at the very end? He said, who neighbored? Who in the story actually neighbored? You see, here's what I want to suggest to you, and this is where I want to land. This story is one of the most well-known, oft-quoted, familiar stories that Jesus ever told. We name organizations after this story. 
the Good Samaritan. We name hospitals after this story. This story elicits how we compliment people. They were such a good Samaritan. And yet I want to suggest to you this story, I believe, is misunderstood, has been misapplied, and is misinterpreted. And because it is misunderstood, and because it has been misapplied, this story has led to naive pride, and has led to deep despair, and has done great damage. Now I have your attention. You see, when Jesus looks at this expert in the law, and he says, go do likewise. When he looks at him, he says, yep, you answered right. The one who had mercy, go do that. You're looking to, remember what the guy asked him, what do I have to do to be worthy to inherit eternal life? He's trying to justify himself. Jesus ends the story, he says, go do that. And if you read this story and you don't see Jesus with a twinkle in his eye and a little sarcasm in his voice, you're going to miss the power of it. And you're going to miss the power for your life because you and I, just like the expert in the wall, spend a lot of our lives trying to justify ourselves. And what Jesus says to this guy is this, go do that perfectly. You got it made. Go love God perfectly. Go love your neighbor perfectly. You'll live. And I think tons of people read this story and miss the point because tons of people read the story and they try to figure out, who do I identify with? And when you read the story and hear Jesus tell the story, it's pretty obvious. I don't think I should be identifying with the priest and the Levite. That doesn't sound like the right thing to do. And so... What I want to do is emulate the Good Samaritan. Go be a Good Samaritan. That's how many people read the story. Our world would be just better if we just had more Good Samaritans. But if that's the way we read the story, there's a problem and there's a danger. And we'll say it again. There's a problem and there's a danger. You know what the problem is? The problem is this, that if you and I are honest, and let's just be honest today, you are I and honest, we can and we do too often relate with the priest and the Levite. If we're honest, not neighboring, not loving our neighbor is really easy for me to justify in my own life. I'm busy. It's risky. It costs. I think the point is this. The problem is that if Jesus says, go do that perfectly, never be the priest and the Levite, I'm in deep weeds. You are too. Because I can look at times in my life when I'm the priest and the Levite. But there's a danger. And this is where I really need you to lean in. The danger is this. Many times I have heard this story taught, most of the time I've heard this story taught, and the unfortunate result is that people leave hearing this story feeling they need to go and justify themselves, and here's what they hear. Go be a good Samaritan. And if that's what you hear in this story, it will lead you to go justify yourself, and it'll either result in a naive pride Look at what a good Samaritan I am. Or utter despair. And you'll feel this need to the rest of your life. Try to justify yourself to God. I'm not that good 
of a Samaritan. So I'm going to try really hard to prove to God that I can be a good Samaritan. And if you and I read the story this way, listen close, so key, so subtle. We will not love our neighbor as ourself. Instead, we will love our neighbor for ourself. Because somehow loving our neighbor becomes the way I justify me and make me feel better about me and try to prove me to God. And if that's the way I read the story, I'll read it totally, totally contrary to the essence, the power, and the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to write a couple statements down, and then I want to show you a passage, and then we've got to land. But these are big statements. I want you to write them down. First is this. I am not, nor will I ever be, justified by what I do. I am not, nor will I ever be justified. This guy asked, what do I have to do to justify earning and inheriting eternal life? That was his question. And the story of the gospel is, I am not justified by what I do, and I will never be. Well, then how am I justified? The good news of the gospel is, I am only justified by what Jesus did. And I am only and always will be. That is the only way for me to be justified in the eyes of God. Romans 5. Can I show you this? You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless in the ditch, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, somebody might dare to die. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, half dead in the ditch, Christ died for us. Since now we have, there's our word, been justified, not by what we do, but by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled together, life together, shall we be saved through his life? The power of what Jesus is teaching in this little story is all about identifying with the right character. And I'm not sure it's the Levite, the priest, or even the Good Samaritan, but there's another character and he's in the ditch and he is beaten and he is naked and he is half dead. And it's not until you and I see ourselves as the man in the ditch that the power of this story will ever pop. Tim Keller has a statement that I love. He said, it's not until you're crushed by the mercy God requires of you that you'll be humble enough to receive the mercy God offers to you. What's the point? The point is this. You and I are the man in the ditch. The point of this story is you and I are in the ditch. Our sin lands us in the ditch of death. Satan is the robber who comes to steal kill and destroy life. It's not until you and I realize that we're the man in the ditch, which leads to this question, well then who's the good Samaritan? Who is the good Samaritan? That's where Luke 9, the chapter right before Luke 10 comes into play because there's something that Jesus said as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, 
Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. The whole book of Luke shifts at this point from chapter 9 to chapter 19. It's all about Jesus. Resolutely, intentionally, I'm heading to Jerusalem. Why? Why? Because in chapter 19 of Luke, he's going to ride into Jerusalem and they're going to say, King of the Jews. Chapter 23, they're going to kill him like a common criminal. Why? Because Jesus, only by walking resolutely to Jerusalem, could he see the man in the ditch, the woman in the ditch, the child in the ditch. He went to Jerusalem, eventually would die on that cross. Why? Because Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan who saw us in the ditch. You ought to write this down. Jesus sees me and he loves me. He's the ultimate good Samaritan. He sees me and he loves me. Not only that, Jesus made the first move to help me. Jesus made the first move and he did not wait for me to get my life cleaned up. But he demonstrated his love while I was still a sinner. Jesus' kindness cost him. He's the ultimate good Samaritan. He went to the cross and gave his life. He paid it all. And Jesus keeps showing up in my life. You see, here's the point of the story, and then we're done. The point of the story is this. I want you to write these statements down. Don't love your neighbor to justify yourself to God. Quit trying to prove yourself to God. Quit trying to prove that you're worthy of eternal life, that you're worthy of forgiveness. You aren't. I know, that sounds mean, right? I'm not. You can't, you never have been able to, you never will be able to. You see, you and your justification has nothing to do with what you do. The minute you think you can justify yourself to God by what you do, it leads to a naive pride. For others of you, it leads you to utter despair. And you spend the rest of your life trying to justify yourself to God. Quit. Instead, loving your neighbor is the response to being justified by God, the ultimate neighbor. God's the ultimate neighbor. And when I say yes to him and what he did for me, that's where justification comes. I'm in the ditch dead. There's nothing I can do to save myself from my sin. God made the first move. God laid out all the expense. God is the one who justifies. See, here's what I want to tell you today. When you try to justify yourself by loving your neighbor, you miss the point of this story. And you end up loving your neighbor not as yourself but for yourself. Instead, when you realize and receive the neighbor love of God, you realize that you're not only rescued, but you've been justified by him. And when I realize that, I'm free to give myself away and love my neighbor as myself, as I've been loved by the ultimate neighbor, God himself. So God, my prayer today is simply this. Some people are watching this and they're in a ditch 
And they've been trying to justify themselves and prove themselves to you. I pray today would be the day they say yes to Jesus, the ultimate neighbor, the one who gave his life on their, in their behalf. Father, I pray for tons of people who would say they've said yes to Jesus. I think one of the things you told this story for was to see how I neighbor. And one of the ways that demonstrates that I truly have said yes to you, my ultimate neighbor, is to look at my life and to ask the question, am I loving my neighbor as I've been loved by you? So God, I pray that somehow this little story with a really big idea would pop and explode in our life. Thank you for loving us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.